All right, it's great to see everyone. Um, I see a few, every week I've been seeing a few new faces, which is very encouraging. If you are new here, welcome. Um, I know I say this every week. We know it's not easy uh, to come into a building full of strangers, worship alongside people that you might never have met. Uh, so we are glad that you are here. We're blessed that you're here. And afterwards, uh, if you'd stick around, we'd love to have a chat and get to know you uh, and even pray for you. Um, just a few things before we jump into today's word. Um, so we, we shared during the announcements, UniCG, uh, Connect Groups. If you haven't registered, you're a new uni student, get onto it. Uh, it. I'm really excited, so excited that my wife and I have committed to try and attend every UniCG group because we looked at what we've got planned. It looks like a lot of fun and my wife likes to have fun. Um, so I'm not going to lie. Um, and... For the welcoming team, uh, we are looking to re recruit. Uh, we're looking to recruit everywhere. Um, we have a very good problem at this church, and I say a good problem. Uh, we struggle to find volunteers because people are already serving at a certain capacity. And I always tell the leadership team, this is such a good problem to have. It is still a problem, though. Uh, and we are praying for more volunteers. Uh, and I want to thank the people that are sacrificing for this ministry to serve in the worship team, the events team, uh, the media team, uh, the kids ministry, the welcome. We've got people serving everywhere. And I just wanted to thank you guys. Um, your efforts aren't unnoticed. Uh, I'm so grateful each week. Uh, and my heart just feels so full every time I come to church. And I, I see you guys just really uh, sacrificing for this ministry. All right. So on that note, uh, why don't we jump into today's word? I, I, the last few weeks, I've just been very excited during the sermon prep process. Um, so today's passage comes from Mark chapter 14. And we're going to look at verses 53. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter uh, to verse 72. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 72. Uh, and I'll give you guys a second to look that up in your Bibles. Uh, I'm not going to lie, the sermon... It's a little bit longer, so I'm going to preach a little bit faster, so hopefully we'll get through it uh, at a reasonable pace. The word of God reads, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false, false, witnesses against, false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him 
and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again, and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times and he broke down and wept. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come almost to the climax of Mark's gospel, we look at this, this sham of a trial that Jesus is subjected to, and we look at Peter uh, as he follows Jesus from a distance after having run away. Lord, we pray that your voice uh, would be communicated clearly through this pulpit, that we would hear you through your word, to understand that this is not just an eyewitness account from Mark about the trial of Jesus, but that this is your living word that's spoken to your people throughout the centuries since the establishment of the early church. And we anticipate with eager hearts to hear from you today. So Lord, may you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you recall last week, uh, Jesus had betrayed, oh sorry, rather Judas, not Jesus, Judas had betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Jewish authorities for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, and the apostles who only moments prior uh, in the preceding verses made bold declarations to Jesus. Uh, they told Jesus, we're going to die alongside you. We're not going to let you die alone. We're willing to lay down our life alongside you. We see that despite all their bravado, the moment danger appears, what do they do? They run away. And out of all the followers of Jesus, uh, we saw last week's passage end uh, with this comical account of one guy remaining, one guy staying behind, uh, Mark, the author of this gospel. And for whatever reason, he was following Jesus in his undies, uh, and he just got manhandled and ragdolled so savagely uh, that he lost his. I don't, I've never been beaten up before, um, but I would imagine if you have the undies beaten off you, that has to be one of the most savage beatings. Runs off naked, back home into Jerusalem. And as I said last week, I would give any, I just want to imagine what it was like to have been a guard at the temple walls in the middle of the night to see a guy completely naked running through the city gates. Uh, you would have so many questions, wouldn't you? Like, where did he come from? Where is he going? Um, but that's how last week's passage ended. And just like last week's passage, in order to understand today's passage, we have to understand that, you know, to, to, to really comprehend everything that's taking place at the end of chapter 14, we have to collage the eyewitness accounts from the other gospels to recount this event. You have to collage because there are four different accounts and you have to collage the details to get a full picture of what's going on. So, for example, in John 18, it tells us that Jesus 
is first taken to the home of the high priest Annas. And Matthew 26 tells us that he's taken to the home of the high priest Caiaphas. What's to go there? Why are there two different people that are the high priest? Uh, is it a contradiction? Uh, not exactly. Annas was actually the ex-high priest, retired, stepped down, uh, and he'd served about five to six years as the high priest until Rome told him to abdicate his position. And all the men that took office, that replaced him after Annas, were actually his sons. Uh, he had a number of his sons become high priest one after the other. And ultimately, in today's passage, it's a gentleman by the name of Caiaphas, who is the son-in-law of Annas. And to give you a bit more context uh, of this whole office of the high priest, um, it had almost become like a criminal enterprise back then. Uh, I like to compare it to the mafia. Uh, and Annas, if you use the mafia analogy, Annas was almost like the godfather. Uh, he might not have been the high priest anymore, but he was the mastermind behind the scenes, pulling all the strings. He was the power broker in charge of this criminal enterprise. And even when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, where did he go? He went into the temple and he saw the money changes and, you know, like all these businesses that have been set up inside the temple. And what does Jesus do? He drives them all out. He flips the tables and he says, you sh this, this place, it's a house of prayer. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. And this marketplace, this whole business, who do you think set it up? It was Annas. Annas had turned the religious system into a profiteering mafia racket. It was a, it was a money-making business. And Annas, over the years, and his family, because his sons were the ones that took power after him, they had amassed an immense amount of wealth, power, and influence. And so when Jesus comes into the temple and attacks the status quo, the businesses and the rackets that Annas had set up, who do you think would have been the most furious? It was Annas. And so Annas is actually the mastermind that creates this plan to have Jesus assassinated. He's the one working with the religious authorities behind the scenes to orchestrate the death of Jesus. And we'll see the level of corruption that he stoops to, that he and his organization, the council and the Sanhedrin stoop to in order to be able to achieve their goals. And so the, the, the people, after arresting Jesus, the temple guards and the representatives, they take Jesus to Annas. And then after they take him to Annas, presumably he says, take him away to Caiaphas, my son-in-law, the high priest. And everyone gathers at Caiaphas's home. Now, I mentioned that today's passage reveals the level of corruption of the judicial system headed up by Caiaphas and masterminded by Annas. And here's just four things wrong. Four reasons why, four things wrong with what takes place. There's a lot more, but just four for now. The first is that Jewish law dictated that criminal proceedings like this one weren't allowed to take place at night. And it was the middle of the night. And the reason for this rule was to prevent kangaroo courts like this, like sham mock trials to just get people sentenced to prison or to death. It was to prevent you know, corruption from occurring in the darkness of night. So the rule, first rule was that you can't have a trial like this at night after dark. Secondly, 
the trials were actually meant to be held in the temple. There was a, a, a location in the temple called the Hall of Judgment where these trials were meant to take place and these trials were meant to be public. And yet, where is this trial being held? It's being held in the privacy of Caiaphas's home, outside of the public eye and in the middle of the dead of night when everyone is sleeping. And we know it's the middle of the night because a few verses later, it says that the rooster crowed and the rooster traditionally crowed at 3 a.m. Thirdly, they weren't allowed to hold trials for capital offenses where you're looking to sentence someone to death. They weren't allowed to hold these trials on the Sabbath or during Jewish festivals. And in this case, we know that the Passover festival is going on. And we know for a fact that the trial of Jesus, what they are seeking, is the death penalty. And number four, the judges or the members of the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the council that's gathered, they weren't allowed to have any direct participation, even indirect participation, in the arrest of the plaintiff. Why? Because that would be a corruption of justice and a conflict of interest. Like even today, the judge and jury is meant to be impartial to the case. I don't know if you've ever been on jury duty. If you know the person being charged, you're not allowed to serve on that jury. But if they're the ones that have filed the charges, which they did, if they're the ones that have orchestrated the arrest, which they have, we see that this trial is a perversion of justice because they're the ones that have filed the charges, sought the arrest, and now they're putting themselves in the seat of judge, jury, and executioner. Now, like I said, there's so many more things wrong with this trial, and I'll go through that in a moment. But according to verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. This was what's called the Jewish Sanhedrin. It was like a council of elders and leaders, and they prepared to hold trial. Presumably, it would have been about 1 a.m. And verses 55 to 59 states, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Uh, a few things I want to point out about this. In verse 55, it says that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. What does that mean? It means that this was a rigged trial. Because in any court of justice, you know that it's not the judge or the jury's job to gather witnesses. That's meant to be the job of the prosecutor. And not only that, verse 56 tells us that the judge and jury, the Sanhedrin, they weren't just seeking to gather testimony or eyewitness accounts. They were looking to gather false witnesses, to bear false testimonies in court. In other words, they were bribing people to lie in court. They were paying people off to commit perjury. And what's crazy is that the rule back then was that if you were caught committing perjury, if you went to court and you were caught lying, giving false witness, then the punishment for that 
according to Jewish tradition, is that you would be subject to the same punishment that you were seeking for the plaintiff. Meaning that if a murderer were, was being, or someone being accused of murder was being tried in court, and you know the punishment for murder was death, if you were caught lying to have this guy put to death, you would be put to death. And these people have been paid off despite the risks to lie and fulfill the plans of the Sanhedrin to have Jesus executed. The other thing I want to point out is that in a court trial, according to Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, and I think Numbers 35, it sets a precedence that in any court trial, especially with a capital offense, you have to have a minimum of two witnesses, and not only two witnesses, the, the eyewitness accounts of those two witnesses have to line up. It has to match. It has to be consistent if you're going to have those charges stick. Yet today's passage says that whilst many people bore false witnesses, they must have paid off a lot of people, whilst many people bore false testimony against Jesus, it says that their testimony didn't agree. It's funny, isn't it? They were paid to do one thing, lie. And they can't get their story straight. It reminded me, I don't know if anyone is old enough. To, is, I don't think Judge Judy is still on TV. Do you guys remember Judge Judy? I love Judge Judy growing up. She's such an amazing woman. Uh, and she, she was just like a, a like no-nonsense kind of judge, drilled straight to the truth. And whenever someone would hesitate, like she'd ask you a question and you'd hesitate, uh, uh, she'd, be, she'd say something like, ah, is not an answer. Do you guys know that? And one of the things that she'd always say is that if you are telling the truth, you don't need to think. You don't need to think of an answer if you're telling the truth because you're just recounting what happens. But we find the eyewitnesses that are giving false testimony in the court trial of Jesus, they can't get their story straight. And so with these bribed witnesses, you know, they, they say a bunch of stuff like, you know, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Firstly, that's not what Jesus said. If you read through Mark's gospel, he's, he doesn't say, I'm going to destroy this temple. He says, destroy this temple. Get rid of this, and in three days I'll raise it up. So not, I'm going to destroy it. But it's just saying, hypothetically, if this temple were to be destroyed, in three days, I will raise it up. Secondly, Jesus wasn't actually talking about the Jerusalem temple. John's gospel, a few verses later, says that he was talking about the temple of his own body. And what's amusing is that, you know, there's so much, there's so much commotion going on in this court, in this trial. You know, people accusing Jesus of this and that, they're threatening, you know, they're claiming that Jesus said, I'm going to destroy the temple. They're bringing all these trumped up charges against Jesus. Yet despite all of this, they can't get two people. Out of all the people they paid off, not even two people can get their stories straight. And even more amusing is that none of these people Despite all the trumped up charges that they're bringing against Jesus, oh, he threatened to destroy the temple, he claimed to be the Messiah. Despite all of their charges and accusations, none of these 
are actually criminal in the sense that it warrants a death sentence. To claim I'm going to destroy the temple, that's not a capital offense. Claiming to be the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one sent by God, that technically, according to Jewish law, was not a capital offense. And so for the Jewish authorities, time is running out. Because they've paid off all these witnesses to try and get one of these charges to stick so that they can sentence him to death. And they want to do it and finish and wrap up this trial in the dead of night whilst everyone is asleep. Because the moment sun rises, people are going to wake up. They're going to find out about this trial. And what are they going to do? They're going to rebel. Because by this stage, Jesus is a very popular figure amongst the people of Judea, Galilee, and Jerusalem. And so in verses 16 and 61, it says that the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. So Caiaphas asked Jesus, Look at all these witnesses. Look at all the accusations that they're throwing against you. What do you have to say in your defense? Now, in reality, Jesus doesn't have to say anything. Because the fact that those witnesses, out of this entire group of witnesses, that not even two people can get their story straight, the fact that they're not even clear on what the charges are that are being brought against Jesus means that Jesus is already winning this trial without saying a word. Additionally, his silence, in a sense, is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 53.7 that says about the Messiah, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. He doesn't respond to Caiaphas' initial question. And so in a last-ditch attempt, because Caiaphas is starting to panic, the sun's going to come up in a few hours. They're, they're not even close to getting an outcome in this mock kangaroo court trial. And so Caiaphas asks Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And upon first glance, it seems like one question, but it's actually two. Are you the Christ, the Messiah? And are you the Son of the Blessed? Or the Son of God. Now, interestingly, if Jesus remained silent, if he continued to remain silent, chances are this court trial would have gone on until sunrise and the Jewish authorities would have had to let Jesus go. But the Jewish authorities know that that can't happen. They can't allow that to happen. And Jesus knows he can't allow that to happen either. Why? Because Jesus knew it was the will of the Father for him to die. It was the will of the Father for Jesus to go to the cross. And so Jesus answers both of Caiaphas' questions about the Messiah. Is he the Messiah? And is he the Son of God? He answers it so that Caiaphas can have what he wants. Verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus answers and begins his answer with two words. I am. 
which in one sense means, yes, you're right. But if you followed our series in Mark's Gospel, you will know that the, the term I am has a multifaceted, uh, it's a multifaceted term. Because it means, yes, on one hand, but on the other hand, the Greek words are ego, I, me. I am who I am, which if you remember, it's the name that God gives himself in the Exodus. And the term that Jesus attributes to himself throughout the Gospels. Before Abraham was, I am. And so not only does Jesus claim to be God, the ego I me, the God of Exodus that liberated Israel, Jesus uses another term, the Son of Man. He says, the Son of Man seated at the right hand and coming with the clouds of heaven. What does that mean? Well, Jesus knows that the people that are present, they're experts in all things Old Testament. And they know when Jesus said, well, he knows when he says that, that these people recognize that Jesus is referring to two passages in the Old Testament. Firstly, he's referring to Daniel 7. Because if you read the prophecy in Daniel 7, it talks about this mysterious divine being who's referred to as the Son of Man. And is described as this God-like being that comes to the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father. And from the Father, this divine being, it says, receives from God dominion, kingship, and glory. And this third term, glory, receiving glory from the Father, it's an outrageous thought, according to the Jewish authorities. Because God shares his glory with no one according to God. And so Jesus is saying, Ego I me, I am God, and I share the glory of God. And secondly, Jesus, by saying, by quoting these, uh, these verses from the Old Testament, he's also citing Psalm 110, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So on the one hand, he's saying, I'm God. I receive dominion, kingship, I share in God's glory. And not only that, I sit at the right hand of the Father. This Psalm 110 was written by David. He's saying, I am the Lord of David, and I am the Lord that Yahweh refers to. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, both terms that are synonymous with God. And he says, Adonai will sit at the right hand of Yahweh. Which means that Adonai, whoever this Adonai is, whoever this son of man, this Messiah, this ego I am is, he is going to sit at the right hand and he is going to be the judge of the world. And so Jesus is not just implying that I am the Messiah. He's not just saying I am the Adonai. He's not just saying I am the ego I am, I am God. He's saying I am the one who is ultimately going to judge you. You've created this mock trial. You think you're judging me? One day you're going to stand before my court and I am going to judge you. I'm the one that's going to have the final say in the end. Now, remember every trumped up charge that they've brought before Jesus up, up until now. That is the Messiah, that he claims to, you know, he's going to destroy the temple. Remember, that despite all the eyewitnesses that they've bribed, 
Not only can they not get two witnesses to corroborate their story, but none of the charges that they've brought against Jesus warrants a death sentence. They're unable to find sufficient legal foundation or evidence to condemn Jesus to death. And so Jesus helps them out. He gives them what they want, a reason to kill him. I am God, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of Man, I am the Adonai, and I am the judge that's going to condemn you. And the reaction was that the high priest tore his garments, which was a gesture of outrage. He wasn't just ripping his clothes. It was like, ah, he like ripped his vest open. And it was a way of expressing either you know, extreme sorrow or extreme rage, the latter in this instance. And he says, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and blindfold him and strike him. So they, punched, they blindfolded him, punched him in the face while he was blindfolded and commanded him to prophesy because the Jewish uh, view back then was that the Messiah would be able to tell who's around him simply by the sense of smell. Everything about this lacks judicial integrity. There's no justice, there's no integrity about this court trial. And what's interesting about this passage is that in the middle we have this court trial and Mark, who's written this account, has been quite artistic about how he presents this court trial because it's sandwiched in between two references to Peter. Verse 54 says that Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. That's the first bookend to this passage. Peter, after having run away in fear, somehow managed to garner a little bit of courage to come to the home of Caiaphas and to see Jesus. But Mark says it was at a distance. It was at a distance. Nonetheless, still dangerous, because you're going into the lion's den, aren't you? Into the home of Caiaphas. You might be looking at it from a distance, but you're still at the home of the high priest. And I say dangerous because Peter is in danger of getting recognized. Recognized by the temple guard that has arrested Jesus and recognized by the servant whose ear that Peter had cut off. Because whose servant was he? Caiaphas's. Peter might get recognized. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 66 Onwards, the passage concludes, it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway in the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again, and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, You certainly are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now, we can mock Peter 
be critical about how he ran away and how he followed Jesus from a distance. But in all fairness, Peter must have been heartbroken. I don't think there was any ounce in Peter that he wanted to deny Jesus or run away. It was just in that moment, fear got the better of him. And what's interesting is that Luke's gospel tells us that the moment that Peter denied him three times, Jesus turned and locked eyes with Peter. He knew exactly where Peter was. Peter was in the distance, but Jesus turned, found, pinpointed exactly where he was in a distance, and he locked eyes with Peter almost as if to affirm to him. Remember what I said? And Peter, according to Mark, broke down and wept, which I think any person that followed Jesus that was in Peter's shoes, you know, they probably would have done the same thing. And that's how today's passage ends. Now, there's two observations or two things uh, I want us to take away and just think about uh, from this passage. And the first observation is that we have to remember that we're not called to follow Jesus from a distance. When we look to today's passage, we see that Peter does summon up a little bit of courage after running away. He comes back into the courtyard of Caiaphas. He comes looking for Jesus, but it's only from a distance. He sits outside in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire, looking at Jesus from afar. And I don't say this as an indictment against Peter, but for us to ask ourselves, are we living out our walk with Jesus at a distance? What do I mean by that? I mean our identity as servants of the Most High God, as agents appointed by God to build and advance His kingdom and the gospel. Are we active participants in this on the front line or are we merely just studying it and observing, observing it from afar? Outside of church, your work colleagues, your friends at school, the neighbours that live around you, do they know who your Lord is? Do they know your identity as a child of the Most High God? Do they know that you've been saved by grace, born again, transformed by the Spirit of God, and that you're a man or woman that's living for the things of eternity? Or do they just know you as Jay of Blacktown that loves a good feed at Macca's? Do they know your likes, dislikes, and your hobbies only? Or do they know what really matters to you? If you are following Jesus from a distance, then it's time to reevaluate the manner in which we are following Jesus, to reevaluate our priorities, repent of what needs to be repented of. And I don't know if this passage makes you feel uncomfortable, made me feel uncomfortable. If it does make you feel uncomfortable, good, because that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign that God is tapping on your heart. And the next question we should ask if we're followers of Christ 
is to ask God, what do I do from here? How do you want me to live from now? And the answer to that question is given to us by God through this same passage. And it's a segue into the second point, second and final point. And it's that Christ demonstrates to us how to follow the Father. You know, one thing about the New Testament, especially Mark, is that Mark is very keen to show us the humanity of Jesus. Yes, we know he's God. Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He was present in Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. But in understanding Christ, we have to understand what we call in you know, a theological term as the hypostatic union. That in the person of Christ, we find both his divinity, but also his humanity. And this split between the divinity and the humanity, it's not a 50-50 split. It is 100% and 100%. He was 100% God and 100% man. And you know, other people from other faiths, Muslims look at that and they're like, that, that's crazy. And the answer is, yes, that is crazy. It is a mystery. But scripture tells us 100% God, 100% man. And when we look to the life and ministry of Jesus, we see that he conducts himself and demonstrates a life of perfect obedience and faith. And he does it in his humanity, not in his divinity. It's not just a matter of, oh, of course he did that, he's God. But Jesus demonstrates for us in his humanity, not just that he perfectly obeyed and had perfect faith, but he demonstrates how he went about doing this. For example, we saw that one of the ways that Jesus prepared himself for this sham of a court trial was that he spent the hours preceding it through painful, gut-wrenching, and agonizing prayer. He called a prayer meeting with Peter, James, and John. Even though they fell asleep, he continued praying. We see that Jesus, throughout the Gospels, equips himself with the will of God through Scripture. Whenever Jesus is faced with a challenge from Satan, in Matthew's Gospel, before he begins his ministry, Satan challenges him. What does Jesus respond with? It is written, it is written, it is written. In the prayer meeting preceding the, the trial and the arrest, he wakes his disciples up. And what does he say? The scriptures have to be fulfilled. De Jesus demonstrates all these things, his prayer life, his commitment to scripture, not in his divinity, but in his humanity. And ultimately, if you were to summarize everything that Jesus did, you could say that his prayer life, his commitment to scripture, you could summarize it by saying it was a demonstration of his dependence on the Father in all that he did. Because that's what prayer is, depending on God. That's what scripture is, trusting in the promises of God. And so my question to you is, do you depend on God? Do you depend on him? Because this is often where we fall short. You know, I'm not asking how much do you volunteer at church. I'm not asking how much are you serving. I am asking you, how much are you living by faith from day to day, depending and resting upon the promises of God? 
Because one thing that we see in the New Testament and in the Gospel of Mark is that you can do a lot of ministry work without depending on God. Because that's what we see in Peter, isn't it? And I think part of the reason why Mark so artistically sandwiches the trial of Jesus in between these two mentions of Peter is to contrast Christ on the one hand, who was living in his humanity in full dependence upon God, alongside Peter, who's trying to do everything by his own strength, depending on no one but himself. His declaration was what? I will die alongside you. That declaration came from a place of pride. His swinging of the sword to cut off Malchus's ear, that came from a place of self-will. He thought his plans were better than God's plans. His denying of Christ three times came from a place of self-preservation. I don't want to die, even though I said I would. Yet we see that everything that Christ does in his humanity can be summarized in that he was submitting his will to the will of the Father. It came from a place of dependence upon the Father, even if it meant dying to self. And so those are the two things I want to conclude today with. The first point, remember that we're not called to follow Jesus from a distance. That was never God's intention. That's not the intention of the gospel. We're not called to follow and observe Jesus from a distance. And secondly, Christ demonstrates to us how we are to follow him, how we are to follow the Father. How do we do it? By absolute dependence upon God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for today's passage. Uh, it is a grim passage as we see this sham of a trial as our Lord Jesus Christ is brought before a corrupt judge and jury, before bribed witnesses. And yet we see in this, uh, in Christ, not an individual that's seeking self-preservation, but the fulfillment of God's will. Not following or observing the will of God from a distance, but ensuring that every fiber of his being, every ounce of strength is expended to ensure that God's will is fulfilled. And so Lord, we pray as servants, as children of you, to be able to emulate this kind of a life, but not by our own strength, but through a dependence by faith upon the Father. We see in Christ an individual who in his humanity immersed himself in prayer, immersed himself in scripture, sought you from strength, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, sought you from strength and had to be sustained by an angel of the Lord sent to encourage and strengthen him. Lord, we pray to be able to emulate Christ in all his humanity on this side of eternity as a people that live fearlessly for your will and your glory in complete dependence upon you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Uh, now, before we jump, normally we have our uh, offering time at this stage. Um, uh, we just have an announcement that we'd like to make. Um, many of you guys, most of you guys know uh, our brother and sister Kevin and Sally who are at the back. We're just going to call them out to the front in a moment. Um, today is actually their last day um, and it's kind of bittersweet, sad to see them go. Um, but it is a day to celebrate uh, because Kevin has answered the call from God uh, to enter into ministry. Um, and so it is something to celebrate, uh, but it is sad to see them go because uh, Kevin and Sally have just been amazing for full life. They've been amazing servants. Uh, they've established the events team in a way. I've never, I've been in ministry for like over a decade. I've never seen an events team like this. And they, they built it from the ground up and really uh, set uh, a standard of quality uh, for, for other people to emulate. Um, and so uh, if we could just get Sally and Kev, if you don't mind coming out, I uh, just want to get you to share sort of where, where it is that you're going, what this new chapter uh, of your life is it's all about. And, yeah. Yeah, you could just... Hi everyone, um, so for those who don't know us, um, my name is Kevin, um, this is Sally, uh, we've been at Full Life for almost a decade now um, and yeah, uh, like Pastor Jay has said, uh, we are keen to answer God's um, you know, calling in our lives and we are going to be serving as a youth and young adults pastor at a church called Viva Vineyard Church in Hornsby. Um, and yeah, it's a small startup church. It's um, a headcount of 25 people. Um, so it's a very small church um, compared to Full Life Ministry. But yeah, that's where we're heading. Um, we need a lot of prayer. Um, I'm very inexperienced. I'm obviously, uh, you know, a lot of you may know I've sinned with you all. <laughs> um, so I've got a long way to go. But um, yeah, we're, we're super excited to um, grow and mature in God. Yeah, so thank you. Um, if I can just get some of the VT members to come out to the front, uh, we'd just like to spend this time praying for you and Sally uh, and Zion as well. Um, and even though we spend this time in prayer, uh, I ask that you continue to pray for Kevin and Sally um, because ministry is not easy. Uh, starting ministry is not easy. Uh, you kind of start blind. There's no easy way to start. You just kind of get thrown in the deep end and learn how to swim. Um, but it's it's hard. Uh, ministry is very hard. And you know, Kevin and Sally, uh, you you guys have grown grown up together with them. So please continue to pray for them. Please keep them in your prayers. Check in on them. Uh, and just every once in a while, shoot them a message and ask them, you know, how's it going? Is there anything that we can be praying for you about? Uh, so in this moment, let's let's spend a bit of time praying for Kevin and Sally, and then um, I'll, I'll wrap us up in prayer.
Father, we thank you for Kevin, Sally and Zion. Uh, we, we thank you for their obedience to not only hear your voice in the call to ministry, uh, but to respond to it. It's never an easy thing to leave uh, your place of comfort and the environment that you grew up in. Uh, but Lord, we pray that you would equip this family with everything that they need uh, to, to discharge and fulfill all the duties of their ministry. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would use them mightily for your kingdom and that with this new church plant, that everything that they put their hand to would be blessed by you, that they would see success in bringing more and more souls to salvation and glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that Full Life would continue to pray for them and support them even after they leave that even though they might be at a different church, that we are still a part of one kingdom and one body. And so, Lord, let us never forget uh, Kevin and Sally, uh, but continue to be there for them. Lord, we, we, we're saddened by this day, but we also celebrate it because we know that you will magnify Christ mightily through them. And so we thank you once again for everything that Sally and Kevin have done for this ministry and that what they will continue to do for your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.